Well, hi, everybody. It's been a great privilege uh, walking with you through the book of Revelation. And I'm very excited as we come to the last chapter, chapter 22, to bring to you the climax of this story. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to God using this time with us. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realised that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty that now, without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry nor as if it were angry, it just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That's a quote from the Silver Chair, uh, part of the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis. And the story is an allegory of the Christian life. Lewis may very well have had Revelation 22 in mind as he wrote that. The lion, of course, is Aslan, who represents Jesus. And Jesus says to us in Revelation 22, Are you not thirsty? Come to the river of life and drink. And so we come to the wonderful climax the end of the story of Revelation. And we find a return to the beginning, in a sense. We are back in the Garden of Eden, but then we're not. Because this is a renewed garden where the blessings are multiplied to cover the whole earth, the whole of creation. We see that the curse that came on humanity through Adam and Eve has been undone. Reversed. It's been undone by the cross of Jesus that sits in the middle of the city. It's been undone by Jesus who brings all the promises to Abraham and David to fulfilment and he beckons for us to come to him and to drink his living water. Let's pray. Father, you have made all things new. You have undone the curse. You have given us a future where we will dwell with you face to face. Help us to hear these words of comfort as well as your urgent words that tell us that you are coming soon. Help us be ready. Give us ears today to listen and respond. Amen. I've got three points today. One, the river of life is a symbol of renewal and rescue. Two, the tree of life, which brings a reversal of the curse. 
And then thirdly, we are given a warning to keep and to guard these words of life. So my first point, chapter 22 begins with a description of a river flowing through the city. Look with me from verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. John's listeners would have immediately recognised that this was a picture that echoed the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 says, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. So it's not, not exactly the same, of course. In Revelation there's not a garden but a city, and it comes not from Eden but from the throne of God and of the Lamb. But the idea is there, a return to the beginning. And that's made even clearer by the tree of life being in this city that spreads on both sides of the river. In Genesis 2, there's also a tree of life that was in the middle of the garden. We've seen before in Revelation that when God defeats Satan and Babylon, he is making all things new, renewal, a new beginning. And so a return to the garden, to the way things were before the fall, before sin came into the world. But this isn't just a rewinding of the clock, a winding back. It's not just starting again like a kind of cosmic groundhog day. This isn't just a return to the garden. It's even better than that. It's creation renewed, but it's also creation perfected. Notice that the river of life flows from the throne of God and the land. The original river in Genesis 2 was good. It brought life in the way that natural water does. Uh, it makes plants grow and animals thrive. But the river of life is living water. It is able to make human beings who were dead because of sin dwell with God and the Lamb forever face to face. And this living water is also a symbol of rescue. We've seen before through Revelation how important the Old Testament background of so many of the images, images are, is for understanding the book, and that applies to the river here. The book of Isaiah is full of images of water in the desert. I want to show you one of them. It comes from Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. What it's talking about here is God's people who are in exile in Babylon returning to Zion, to Jerusalem, rescued from slavery by God. Water in the desert is a wonderful word picture to describe God rescuing and restoring his people, bringing life where there was once desert 
and slavery. Friends, this is also a description of what God has done for us because we were in slavery to sin. We had no prospect of life, but God and the Lamb have rescued us and will bring us into the new Jerusalem to drink from the river of life. Well, we are then told that on either side of the river is the tree of life, and that's our second point. Follow with me from verse 2. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. This is no ordinary tree. It covers the whole river and puts down its roots on each side. And it doesn't just give a normal amount of fruit, 12 crops of fruit, a new crop every month. This is blessing upon blessing, abundance, way beyond the first garden. The first garden had fruit trees as well, but as far as we know, they were just ordinary trees giving fruit probably once a year. And the leaves of this tree are for the healing of the nations. The original garden brought blessing and abundance to Adam and Eve. But now God's blessing is multiplied millions upon millions of times to extend from just a little corner of the Middle East to all nations of the world, to the whole earth. And it brings with it an undoing of the curse. When Adam and Eve ate from the first tree, they brought upon themselves the curse. But now the leaves of the tree that they could not touch bring blessing to all people in all nations who trust in Jesus. Well, what does this blessing look like? How is this curse undone? Look with me at verses 4 to 7. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We see three ways here that the curse is undone. In verse 4, we will see God face to face. Adam was banished from God's presence in the garden. Moses asked to see God's glory, but God told him that he could not do that face to face. Instead, his goodness would pass before him. If he saw God's face, he would die. Exodus 33.20 You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, after meeting with God, the Israelites were so afraid even to look at Moses' face because it reflected the glory of God. But we will see God face to face. During lockdown, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? We can't even see each other's face to face, well, except through a screen, let alone see God. We can know him by faith, but not yet by sight. But perhaps you're feeling like God is a long way away um, because physically we, we don't have a lot of those reassurances of his presence. We're not able to physically go to church. We're not able 
to physically meet with each other. But a day is coming when we will see God face to face. In the Bible, that's a way of saying that we will know him, that we will really know God. Secondly, night will be no more. We talked about that last week. Darkness, fear and the evil that night can bring are all gone. And the greatest partner of darkness is death. That has been crushed underfoot by Jesus, never to terrify us again. And then thirdly, we see in verse 5 that God's people will reign with the Lord forever and ever. Right through Revelation, we've seen that that Jesus the Lamb has won the victory over sin. Satan, Babylon, death, the powers of evil, by his blood have been conquered. And we share in that victory by washing our robes in his blood. And how does the tree of life do all that? How does it undo the curse? It does it by being an instrument of death, Jesus' death. Because the tree of life is Jesus' wooden cross. The word for tree in verse 2 is an unusual word in the original language. It's not the usual word for tree. It's the word zulot. It's also used in Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross or a tree. The word for cross here is zulos. You killed Jesus by hanging him on a zulos. So in Revelation 22, the tree of life is the cross. The cruel lump of wood that took Jesus' life away gives life to people from every nation, every tribe, every language across history and across the globe. The cross undoes the curse and it multiplies the blessing of the garden millions upon millions of times. The city of God, the new Jerusalem we saw last week, covers the whole earth. The tree of life brings healing to every nation on earth. God's plan isn't just to rewind the clock and do a reset. It's to renew the creation in a way that uses all of human history with all its failings and disasters and turn things of those things around to bless rather than curse. And so the new creation includes the new Jerusalem, a city. Instead of being a curse like the city of Babel, like Babylon in Revelation, God uses a redeemed city to reach every people and every nation on earth. Well, our third point is that chapter 22 ends off with a warning that the message of Revelation is to be taken seriously. Don't mess with it. Don't ignore it and don't change it. Don't mess with this word. The book of Revelation might seem strange and different from other books in the Bible, but this climax to the whole biblical story pulls together a number of threads that hold the whole story together. It shows that in the middle of all the dragons and plagues and seven-headed beasts, the message that 
holds everything together of God saving people by his grace, by his own initiative, at the cost of the blood of his own son, is the same golden thread that that hasn't changed from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It's God's constant, consistent message of saving human beings for the purpose he created us to have. And we are warned to respond in two ways to the word of Revelation. First and foremost, we are to keep it. Have a look at verse 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. How do we keep these words? By acting on them. And it tells us how to do that in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. What's it mean to wash our robes? That shorthand for what we've seen a number of times already in Revelation, washing them in the blood of Jesus, trusting in what he did for us when he died on the cross and shed his blood, believing that he died and paid the penalty for your sins and mine. That is the one and only way to share in the tree of life, to have eternal life with Jesus and with God. That's the golden nugget that holds the whole of the book of Revelation together, the gospel message, the same message of the whole Bible. Revelation, for all its weird and wonderful visions, is telling us the same good news that cries out from every part of God's word, trust in Jesus and be saved. If you're not yet a Christian or you're not sure where you sit with Jesus, can I urge you to act on this warning? Jesus says in verse 7, look, I am coming soon. He is returning. And when he does, it will be too late to trust in him if you haven't already. If you are sitting on the fence, he is warning you not to delay. Make a decision to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And then secondly, we are warned not to change this word. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. That's a pretty heavy warning. Mess with his word and you will lose your place in the new Jerusalem. You will lose eternal life. Why is this such a big deal? So many visions and pictures in Revelation are so wild and hairy. Why are they so important? Because as we've seen, the message of Revelation is the message in the Bible that Jesus has won the victory through his blood on the cross. Now he reigns as king. Evil and sin have been defeated and there is a judgment coming for those who reject Jesus 
and follow Satan. As we've said before, Revelation pulls together many different uh, threads that run through the whole Bible. And central to all these things is God providing a saviour for fallen human beings. And we see that tucked into one verse in chapter 22. Have a look with me at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The offspring of David is the Messiah who would be a king ruling over God's people and the nations. The bright morning star is from the book of Numbers when Balaam blessed Israel, saying that a star would rise and judge the enemies of God's people and rule over them. Both of these figures are fulfilled in Jesus, who is king and judge, as well as saviour. The point of including this verse in chapter in Revelation 22 is to show that this message is central to the gospel. Jesus as judge, king and saviour is a message that's right through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It's the unchanging message of the gospel. And we are not to change it. We are to guard it and protect it. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, okay, Marshall, I believe all that about Jesus. I'm not about to go and change it. But as we've seen before, the message of judgment, that all who reject Jesus are condemned, it's not a popular message, is it? And we can be tempted to soft-pedal on it, to downplay it. But if we do that, it takes away our need for Jesus. If there's no reality of God's wrath, then we have no need for Jesus to save us from anything. But even more crucial than that, and this, this is the point I really want to challenge you with today, is that we are constantly tempted to change this word by adding to it. As human beings, we have a natural instinct to add to the gospel. Revelation tells us that the way to share in the tree of life, the way to dwell with Jesus face to face forever is to wash our robes in his blood. Nothing less, nothing more. To trust in him and what he has done for us. To bring nothing of our own to the table. And that's an affront to our pride. But wait a minute, God, surely I can, I can offer my own gifts. Surely I can contribute my hard work in serving and my discipline in prayer. Surely, surely they count in my favour. Surely you're more pleased with me because I gave all that money for you. No. Even our righteousness is filthy rags, says God. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. I heard during the week some reflections from Tim Keller, very well-known writer and pastor. Uh, he has pancreatic cancer and it's probably terminal, probably going to kill him. He said that cancer has really focused the way 
that he counsels people who are facing death. Keller says now that he sees more clearly than ever that when what people need is the gospel. Doesn't matter if they've been a Christian 50 years, 70 years, we all need to come back to the solid rock of Jesus dying for your sins and trusting him alone. We never move on from that, friends. We never leave it behind. We never graduate to some higher level. We are saved by Jesus' blood through the cross. We will always be saved by Jesus' blood through the cross. We continue to live and breathe that gospel air. Every day we live as a Christian. Revelation is a wonderful book. It tells us that Jesus has won the war against Satan, Babylon, sin and death. It tells us that we are on the winning side, not because of our military muscle, but because we wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. With the defeat of the powers of evil, Jesus the Lamb has righted the wrongs of the world. And because of that, we look forward to a future in the new Jerusalem where the Lamb will pitch his tent and live with us forever. And in that city, he will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. Neither, there, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. <laughs>